Well, uh, this morning, if it's okay with you, um, I'm going to just kind of be raw and uh, share uh, just a bit of the journey. Uh, I, in a way, I want, I want the message that I preached last week to be kind of the last, mes- last formal sermon that I preached. For, for a variety of reasons, I believe prophetically, it's, uh, you know, yielding to grace and, and how do we navigate life in these tumultuous times when we have the need for both justice and judgment, which accompanies justice, and grace and mercy to properly make their way, you know, through the intersections of life. How do we do that? Um, and if you didn't hear the message, I'd encourage you to go back. I want that to be the endearing message, the last thing that I've said in a sense that's formal and today I want to just kind of share, it, it'll still be biblical, it'll still be, I'll st- I believe there'll still be something in it for all of us that will matter, but really just kind of our journey and from my heart, if that's okay with you. And um, there's no other passage that I could turn to to do that than the passage that has driven our entire journey here uh, with this congregation, and it's in the first chapter, or it's in the second chapter of the book of First Thessalonians. So First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And uh, it says, we love you so much. Or, uh, I'm not really fond of that exact translation. That's the best we can do. And it's the newer NIV. Uh, but I'm going to read it to you the way I like it. Uh, we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become dear to us. There's so much I love about this verse, and um, the more I've looked at it in my life, the more I've become committed to it, and the more I believe that it is one of those little jewels within the, the Bible that, that, that embodies the entire gospel within a verse. I believe it embodies within it the cry of Maranatha, because when we are giving our lives over to the idea of, of declaring the gospel, and in doing it in a way that connects to our lives, we are literally asking for the spirit of Christ to invade every aspect of our lives. We are saying, come Jesus, you know, into our lives. And so uh, that passage of scripture matters, and we'll, I'll refer to it in a bit, because we'll, I'm going to have to break down a couple of things in it for you. Much of it you're, you're familiar with, because I don't think there's a passage that I've preached more often in this church than that. I've preached it at least once or twice a year, and... Uh, I can tell you exactly the day that the Lord gave me this, this verse as the vision for this church. Uh, it was on May 13th of 2003. I was in my devotional time, spending time with the Lord, and I had been asking the Lord very desperately for him to speak into my heart something very clear about the way in which we would lead this congregation that we were about to um, plant about about a month after May 13th, my family picked up and moved from Central Florida here to the North Florida, not knowing a single person. And I think I have a picture of that journal entry um, th- that is from that day. That's my soap journal. And on that day, as I was just doing my devotional time, the Lord broke in in such a powerful way that I feel like it was one of those... Um, like thine eye diffused a quickening ray, like, uh, like I felt like the presence of God invaded that place where I was doing my devotional and said to me, this is the vision. 
that you'll build upon. And I knew it in a moment. I actually preached this message in the church that I was in the next Sunday and uh, declared it as uh, it was so burning in my heart that I couldn't hold it until I got here. Um, and so that on that, sun, or on that day, I don't even know what day of the week it was, but May 13th, 2003, I knew that the Lord had spoken to me that this is the vision upon which we would, we would plant a church here in Jacksonville. But let me back up a couple of months from that into February of 2003 when I was sitting on a plane in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, having just finished uh, going to a, a national pastor's conference uh, in Phoenix, and I was on my way from Phoenix to New Jersey to speak over the weekend at a, uh, at a particular church that asked me to come. At that point, I was serving a church in Central Florida, a large church where we served. I served as an associate pastor, and I had a lot of time. I spent a lot of time traveling or speaking. I shouldn't say traveling. Some travel, but a lot of speaking in other places. And uh, my goal at that time was to speak as much as I could in as many places as I could. So I was preaching sometimes four or five times a week. I just wanted to. I loved it. And I was on a plane getting ready to fly to Jersey, and I got a phone call um, from a man who was in charge of new church development or church planting with what I'll just refer to as the denomination. Uh, and he called to say, um, you know, you have quickly made your way through the, the, the process of assessment. We think you're we, we really like you. We really want to see you in a new church, and we have this incredible, what we believe to be an incredible opportunity in this place in Jacksonville that's called Oakleaf Plantation. And I, you know, I knew Florida fairly well, and I was like, well, I don't think I've ever heard of that city. And he's like, well, it's not really a city. It's kind of nothing. And, and he just left me with that and asked me to pray. And I prayed uh, on that flight with absolutely no idea. I don't even think I had a chance to call Carol. Text messaging wasn't maybe a big deal yet. And so I just had a, a, a flight to pray, and I felt fairly resolved by the time I landed, this is what the Lord was leading us to do. Um, but we got in a car um, shortly after I got home from that New Jersey engagement and with Carol and I believe all of our children, if I'm not mistaken, and we drove up to Jacksonville, and we drove to this metropolis called Oakleaf Plantation, and as we came upon the scene, much to our surprise, we found nothing. We found a road, a little two-lane road called Brandonfield Chafee and a little two-lane road called Argyle Forest Boulevard, and we found a lot of dirt. We found a piece of property that was earmarked to be the, the site of a church that was hard to tell from the rest of the pine forest that was just all around and as a guy who had a background in commercial real estate development and had a, a, something of a penchant for, for having vision when it comes to property, I was so disoriented and confused. I didn't know which way to look or what was what. There was literally nothing there. We drove into what was the first phase of, of that development, and there were some frames going up, some framework for a amenity center. And that was about all there was to show for it. I think there were a few houses that were being you know, speculatively built or maybe the first few people who were, who were building. And we made a few trips up uh, after that just to kind of, uh, we, we said yes. We knew this is what the Lord was calling us to do. Uh, like I said, not only did we know no one uh, up here, there wasn't anyone to know and because there wasn't anyone there in the community yet. 
But around the time that we moved, we, we moved up here about a month after that May 13th revelation. We moved in June, and we actually lived in the Avondale area in a, in a house that was owned by uh, another church in the denomination, and they let us live there for free. We loved that house, by the way. We could walk to a loop and hang out. It was, we, called it, we still refer to it as our, affectionately as our summer house, as though we've always had one. We never have, but it was our summer house for a summer. Uh, it had a basement. And our kids loved it. We had a blast. We played laser tag in the basement. Um, and it was a cool summer. But we would travel back over on a daily basis. And I'll show you a picture uh, that uh, if, if the, I think you might have it. I don't know. The, the kind of the, the, not that one. Is there the two panel picture, the left and right picture? You didn't put that one in there? Oh, okay. Never mind. Um, so there, well, then I wouldn't even tell you the story. Just imagine if you can that there is a uh, before and after. And when we took a picture in the early days, there was literally no houses and nothing on the street where we were to live. We took a picture at kind of a little corner and, uh, and just be began to pray that, that God would get this house built so that we would have a permanent place to live. It took a lot longer for that to happen than we liked. It created a lot of stress. We actually drove our children in the morning. We'd start very early in the morning to bring our kids to Clay County because we wanted them to start in the schools they would be in. And we started a process of dropping them off at schools and bus stops. And then we would go home or somewhere for a couple hours until we had to restart the process of picking them all up again in the afternoon. Uh, it was a crazy time. It was, it was not lovely. Um, but what we did with our free time is we spent all of our free time. The one thing they'd gotten done is they finished the pool. And so we spent as much of our free time as we possibly could at the amenity center at that pool where we would just hang out there. And I carried that verse on my heart of sharing the gospel in my life. And so what I would do on a daily basis is I would wade up to young, unsuspecting families. Yeah, there on the left is the, is the, is the picture when we, when we were first moving. I, you might not can see it that well from here, but there's nothing on the street. And then the picture on the right, Carol just took this week. Uh, you know, all of the trees have grown up. You can't even see our house in the background anymore that we lived in. It's quite a change. And if you live out in that area now, you know, if, if you're just moving there now, it feels a bit like a mature neighborhood. The, the, the trees are starting to mature enough to kind of, other, you know, each side of the street, the oaks are going to touch soon. And there was literally nothing when we moved there. And um, at any rate, I would wait up to people in waist-deep water who were, in most cases were even younger than us. We were in our middle to late 30s. And I would ask them what brought them there, and they would, if they, once they got over their fear of the creepy guy wading up to them in waist-deep water, they would share what brought them there. And then in many cases, they'd ask what brought me there, and I would tell them the story of our church and the, and the gospel. And we literally led people to the Lord uh, that, in that fashion. I would say that most of the early people who connected around us were either new Christians or people who had fallen far away from God, and we were able to bring back into, into the fold. And that was what we did. Uh, that was what we did for, for, actually, for the first year of our lives, we did what I call ministry by walking around. We just kind of connected wherever we could go and did whatever we could do, whether it was a school function or a community function or sports programs. I was the first coach of the first thing that happened in Oakley Plantation for the first program that they had out there it was a cooperative with the YMCA, and it was horrible because it was free. And so you know what happens when it's free? Everybody puts their kid in there because it's free, and about 87% of the kids don't want to be there. Yeah, and so it was a lot of fun. Uh, uh, the, 
in what we did, for what it's worth, in leading into the community, I had all these ideas of all these things that I would do. And I'll just tell you, for what it's worth, in my life, the most repeatable pattern that I can see is when God takes us through transition. Jeff, have you ever heard the, the expression, man plans and God laughs? It's not really biblical. It's actually not biblical at all. It, when you find God laughing in scripture, he's usually mocking his enemies. So I don't believe God laughed at us, but I think he was somehow tickled by our plans. And I will tell you, in our, in our times of transition, Jeff's plans almost never work. And so all of the plans that I had of all the cool things we do didn't really work. And what we did to begin to break into our community, the very first thing we did is my wife led a Bible studies for women. And I watched their kids. So that was church planter Jeff with all of the little letters after his name and all of the little certificates of study. I just watched kids while my wife taught, Bible, taught the Bible to, to other ladies in the community. But eventually we began to, to gain some some foothold, and I will just, I will shortcut all those years by telling you it was a season of miracles, uh, literal miracles, whether it was the provision of places or uh, people or resources. Um, I can tell you we patched together at a very first place that we, we did our ministry on Youngerman Circle, that way, I guess, and uh, because there was nothing in the Oak Leaf area that you could do something with. We had a piece of land that they, they, they put a lot of debt on, and I couldn't understand why. They, they thought they'd given us a gift, but they gave us a piece of land that they borrowed all the money to buy it plus the closing costs, so it actually had a negative net, we had a negative net worth, and I, I, I just couldn't understand it, but there was no way to build on it, so we rented this ratty warehouse on Youngerman Circle, and we built it with next to nothing. Literally, I can remember because... Brian reminded me that he showed up here. He graduated from college and showed up here in Jacksonville on the day we signed the lease. Like, it's, it's, I can't even fathom how that all worked out in that timing. But I can literally remember, Brian, I hope you remember this, that we sat in that, that, that warehouse that, uh, what it had been used for immediately prior to us being there. Do you remember? Engine company or something like that? It was not in good shape. We it, famous Amos cookies before that, um, or but so bef so we didn't have the money to fix the holes in the wall. So what we did is we took masking tape, and we taped over the holes and then painted. <laughs> I'm talking holes like you know kid could put their head in kind of holes, and it was smoke and mirrors, folks. It was dark paint, and don't look. We didn't light the walls really well. We built out some really cool. Does anybody remember that space that's here in this room? Yeah, we had a really cool cafe in the back that was a raised platform with a drop ceiling kind of thing. It was just massively dangerous. We prayed every week that that ceiling wouldn't fall on anybody, and it didn't. Um, and I will tell you, God, God showed up. He showed up. We were, I don't think there were many people doing church like we were doing church at the time. God showed up in, in reaching people who were far from God. He also showed up in attracting people to our church from other churches, which was, not our, was never our aim but before we knew it, we had a ton of people in our church who were either brand new believers or people who had been trashed in ministry. It was like a mash unit, you know, and, and, uh, and we grew. I mean, I can tell you there Easter Sunday, the, I think the, one of our peak Easter Sundays there, we were 550 people or something like that. We were on our way. And we went from space to space to space to space. Um, Brian, we counted it last week. What did we determine this is? Eight? Seven? Seven or eight properties we've been in. 
And what I will tell you, and Matt, you can put that other picture up there that had the, 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 the etching there in the concrete. That's in the concrete outside of our house on Timber Mill Lane. It's, Carol just took that picture on Wednesday or Thursday. It says 1st Thess 2-8-2003, and there's a little cross embedded there. It's still there in the concrete. And that, that word, that verse, is embedded in every place we've ever been. It's embedded in the breezeway. You know, out there, I wrote it in the concrete. It's in the steps of this altar. It's on the walls or the floor of every place we've ever been. It is, and I'm not saying this as a good luck charm. I'm telling you, it has been the anchor and the driving force concern for our lives in ministry the entire time that we've been there. It should be on the wall somewhere here, in my opinion. I mean, it is, it, it should be the thing that we remember I cannot, if you could, if there's a better way to express the mandate that God's put on our lives as a congregation with regards to the way we're supposed to live, then you should ask him for it and you should go with that. But until he gives it to you, you should use this. That's my, my, my estimation. And so I will tell you that we have not lived this out perfectly. And I'm now speaking on, on behalf of myself and, and, and Carol. We've done our best to live this out, to share the gospel and to share our lives. I feel very confidently that we've shared the gospel in a very hearty way, and we've never backed off that or fallen off into edges or whatever it may be. We have shared the gospel with great faithfulness the entire ministry. I will tell you that we've not always shared our lives in ways that, are, that I think live up to this, either because we have had seasons where things come up or because I can tell you that there are, I know there are relationships that, that to this day are not as good as they should be because of things I did or didn't do and I have, I carry that in my heart. There's always a desire in my heart to make sure that anyone who we've ever ministered to, whether it's somebody who is deeply connected here or peripherally connected to our church, that we would, as much as it's possible for me, as Romans 12 says, that I would live at peace with everyone that's around. And so it's been our aim to do that, but we know that we are human and haven't done that perfectly, but it has been our aim along the way. And so I don't have a script. I don't have an agenda. I hope I won't. Uh, I, want, I, I have a temptation to think of every cheesy joke that Gary Larson ever told me and just bring them all out right now, but I, I, I'm, I'm fighting that a lot right now to not do that. Because I do think one of the, 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 the mandates is, it, it, particularly in seasons like this where we're getting into really difficult times, we have lots of controversy going on around us, is that we have to remember to not take ourselves too seriously. <laughs> you know? I mean, let's get really serious about Jesus and about his presence in our lives and what he wants us to do. But let's, let's not just, let's just not lose our minds in, in, in things that are not supposed to be as serious as we make them. So I'll resist the temptation to tell jokes, but it's, it's right here. <laughs> right here. But that, that's, that has been our goal. But I want to bring it to the, the present and talk a bit about the future. Um, I believe the anchor still holds on this verse. I believe, as I've just said, that this still is a way in which we need to conduct ourselves. And my bias is that this, if this verse has caught hold of your heart, you'll never be the same. And you'll live your life according to it. And if it hasn't yet caught hold of your heart, it shows. And I'd like to unpack that for you for just a few minutes and, and explain why from the verse itself. What Paul is saying here is, is that he showed up in, in Thessalonica with, with Silas and Timothy and didn't know these people. 
He arrives on the scene and doesn't know them. And what he essentially says to them is he says, we loved you so much we were delighted to share the gospel with you in our lives. And what he's saying is something that doesn't make sense to me. He's saying, like when we showed up in Jacksonville, we didn't know anybody. We, in fact, the congregations turned over several times. You know, people come and people go. And the, the, the amount of people that we've known, I don't know that there's ever been anybody that's gotten connected in the life of this church. Well, there, well, there have been a few that we knew prior to them showing up at this church. You know what I mean? Everybody that's shown up and got connected here, I think 99% are people that were new relationships for us when they first arrived. When you first arrived, we, we met you. And, and what we were saying is what Paul said is, man, we love you so much. We're delighted to share with you the gospel in our lives. And you might say, like I would say, what do you mean you love me so much? You don't even know me. But Paul, I believe, was saying this with legitimacy and with passion. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 13. He says, let brotherly love continue. And I think he's saying is something like this here. Paul is using the word agape. We love you so much. He's saying the unconditional love of God was so strong. What he's saying essentially is God has touched my heart so deeply that I now love people no matter who they are with the same love that he has for me. People who are unlovable. People who might have different opinions than me. People who might seek to hurt me. People who I might otherwise call my enemy, my adversaries, my whatever. I love them because God loves them, and it's my aim to reach them with God's love. And so I can legitimately say to somebody I've never met, hey, I love you. I love you. And this is, this is the aim of this passage is for the weight of this to hit your heart. And Paul says, I'm going I'm to read to you the broader context as we get to the future part of it. Paul essentially says he uses language that is so powerful and it's so particular to this. It's nowhere else in the New Testament. He's essentially borrowing language from the nursery, a mother and her child. When he's talking about how affectionate he felt for you, he's saying our we were so connected to you when we met you that we wanted to give you everything we could give you to see you in right relationship with God. I don't know that, that I can communicate, you know, the weight of this. But he, but he doesn't just say, do you see there where he uses the verb, there's a verb there, share? He ties that word not only to the gospel, but also to lives. And I want to break that down. First off, when he says gospel, most of you don't, I think, carry a deep enough definition of what Paul and what the Bible means when it says gospel. Most of us carry a definition of, like, a way to persuade somebody to be a Christian. Sharing the gospel is like bumping into somebody at Walmart and saying, hey, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? It's like a plan. It's a way. It's a shtick to, to share with somebody who's not a believer how to become a believer. That's most of what we mean by it. And you go, well, what is it beyond that? Oh, well, it's the good news. Well, the good news of what? Oh, the good news of Jesus. He, he died on the cross, and he rose again. He forgiven us, he's forgiven us of our sins. That's, that's, what we, that's kind of the, back, the root of our understanding. But that is not what the Bible means when it says the gospel. When the Bible uses the word gospel, it means, in, in, in simple form, it means the entire testimony of God the entire redemptive testimony of God. The foundation of the gospel, just to remind you again, is the story of Israel. It's the story of God pouring his heart out through this particular people. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis when he works through a man named Abraham to establish an everlasting covenant through a group of people through whom he will bless the entire world. It goes back really to the garden where there was this perfect relationship that got marred by sin, 
He shows grace to them, even though he banishes them from the garden. Then all of a sudden, within a few chapters, it's almost no possibility of having a good relationship with God. He establishes covenant, and through the course of the Old Testament, works over and over and over again with this particular, strange, humble, least of these group of people, stubborn, stiff-necked folks, and he lives out this covenant in a way that ultimately culminates in Jesus coming. So the foundation's the story, and upon that foundation, we have Jesus showing up. We have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell his story of his perfect life, his sinless life, and his death and his resurrection. And not only his resurrection, but his ascension. And guess what? Someday he's returning. And when he returns, he's going to return and restore this earth to what it was supposed to look like, and he's going to restore it to a sinless state. And there's going to come a day where you and I are going to relate to each other with no masks, And with no possibility of sin being even in our relationship. So Yolanda, when I share a story with you, I'm not going to, all that sarcasm that I carry as, def, as a defense, all the embellishment that I put in my stories just to kind of make sure that I don't get too vulnerable around you, all that's going to be stripped away. You're going to think I'm even funnier than you do right now because you think I'm really funny. But we're going to know each other like we've never known each other before. And there's no possibility of sin marring that. And guess what? That's part of the gospel. And so when we share the gospel, when this says we're sharing the gospel, it means all of that. And some of you have bought into some lies about the gospel, like it either means some high-pressure thing where there's low relationship but high pressure. Like, i got to convince you in this moment that to, to follow Jesus or you're going to go to hell. You know, and, and, and that's usually not that effective. I've seen it work. Context is everything, but it's usually not that effective. Some of you bought into this weird lifestyle thing where you believe, you've heard the lie, share the gospel wherever you go, but in, if absolutely necessary, use words. You heard that said before? And you, it's attributed oftentimes to St. Francis of Assisi. He never said it. And so you're like, I don't ever have to actually say anything to anybody. I just live this great life, and people will just know when they look at me that I am a Christian because it will just, they'll be like, you know, rainbows and flowers that come out of me emanate as I walk through, the, and, and Jesus will just sing songs about me when I, when I go through life. <laughs> and some of you just believe in osmosis evangelism that says, I don't have to do anything ever to anyone, or I'm an undercover agent. But the mandate that's upon your life is that if you call yourself a believer, a follower of Jesus, is that you would open your mouth and that you would declare the wonders of God to people anyone who you cross paths with, particularly those who are outside of the household of faith. But here's what I'll tell you. The effectiveness of that sharing, when it's divorced from your life, is, is, is very minimal. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, that you can have all the gifts of the world, but if you divorce it from love, you're just a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal. You, you have to connect it to something deeper. And I will tell you this, beloved, that when your life, when your heart and the gospel connect, it's all over. You will be effective. You people around you will come to know Jesus. If you've never led somebody to the Lord before, you will. When God connects your heart, your life to his gospel, winds you up and sets you out in the world, watch out. It's all over. And if you've never asked him, or more appropriately, you've never given him permission to do that, I beg you in the name of Jesus to let this be a new day where you let him in. He did not save you for yourself. 
if you bought into a theology that says that the, the theology of salvation is for God to rescue you from hell, then you have bought into a really cheap gospel. Because the truth of the matter is, is that your spiritual formation is about you becoming more like Jesus for the benefit of others. And as he gets hold of your heart, it will take root in the lives of others, in your household, in your friendships, in your work relationships, in strangers' lives, in everyone whom you encounter. It will matter to them. And when Paul shares this and says, sharing not only the gospel, but sharing our lives as well, he uses a word here for lives that literally means your soul <laughs> or Physiologically, it literally means your breath. And so the picture that I have of this that I think you should see alongside me, the picture is of somebody laying on the ground who's no longer breathing and you rushing up and diving on their body and tilting their neck back and clearing their throat and putting your mouth over their mouth and giving them mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Let it rain. This is what this passage means, that you would literally give your life away. So when we say, hey, man, we're just doing life. <laughs> we just want to do life together. Unless you mean by that something as deep as this, that's kind of a cheap saying. What Paul is getting at here is you're willing to lay your life down to see someone else live. When God gets a hold of your heart in a way that you're willing to, to live this way, it's all over, folks. You'll go anywhere for him. You'll do anything for him. You'll give anything to see people come to know him in this way. My hero, one of my heroes in the faith, a man I never met because he died in the 50s, this guy by the name of Nate Saint, who died in Equ the jungles of Ecuador, speared by a man named Menkai, who ultimately became a, a, a dynamic preacher and died just recently. But Menkai speared him as a late teen, early 20s guy, and Nate Saint went with four other men into the jungles of Ecuador and, and, and died at the end of a spear because he believed that Minkai and his people, who are known then as the Aukas or savages, and are known, they're known they're the Wairani, he believed that these, these people, this tribe who were unknown, they were, everybody was afraid of them because they killed everybody. Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and Roger Udarian and two other guys believed that if Jesus died for them, then I'm willing to die for them. And Nate Saint preached a message on expendability where he said, I don't want to go. I don't have some martyr complex. But men are willing to go to war to lay their lives down for freedom in this country. But they stay home for the gospel. And if we came to realize the price at which our lives have been purchased, we would go anywhere and give anything to see others come to know Jesus. I'm just wondering if you're willing to go to your neighbor gospel in your lives. And I'm begging you, beloved, in this last Sunday that I have the authority to say this, that you would at least ask Jesus if he wants to do a work in your life to connect these two aspects. Can I share a quick story that's my root story for, for God showing me this in my life? I'll do it in the shortest version. I have a long version. I'll give you something like the elevator version. God rooted my calling in life in evangelism and seeing and wanting to see people who didn't know him come to know him. In many ways, my job as a pastor has hurt that because I spend less time doing that than I'd, I'd like to do. I believe that the rest of my life will be doing two things. 
coaching people who are ministering, you know, the gospel wherever they are in the world and reaching the lost. I believe that's the things that I'll do. But early on in my ministry, you know, 22 years ago or something like that, I, I, I came to a very dry place where I realized the fact there were people who were living around me who were, who, as far as I could tell, they were going to hell. You know, you can't really ever know somebody else's soul, but by, by all appearances on the outside, they were. And in one particular family, moved into the neighborhood and then moved out, and I never even knew their name. And it, and it I guess what convicted my heart was I didn't care. I didn't know their name. And I asked the Lord that day, I said, hey, if this is what you've called me to be, I got a little, I need a little heart surgery. And I expected in the moment of prayer for God to bang me, you know, over the head and for something to happen like, you know, like uh, defibrillator, you know, and I would boom and I'd be back. and But nothing really happened. About a month later, we were at a theme park with our whole family. And um, what happened in that theme park is in the course of that day, our our second youngest, uh, Sam, who was just a tiny little toddler, we lost him. I mean, lost him, lost him. On a, on a holiday weekend theme park. And uh, and in a parent of the year moment, you know, award moment, we didn't realize we'd lost him for about five minutes. And when we realized we lost him, we freaked out like anybody would freak out. And I, I'll never forget Carol. It was love, but it was, if you don't know my wife, you might think she's shy and quiet and timid. And she, never, she, she carries a very, very deep authority. And she put her finger at me and said, go find our boy. And there wasn't any possibility of coming back without him. <laughs> if I didn't find him, I was going to keep going. <laughs> and I did find him. And it was a beautiful ending. We found him, right? go throughout the rest of the day and we get in the car to drive home that night. Everybody falls asleep and I'm praying. I'm, I'm praying out loud because I want to stay awake. It's a good idea to stay awake when you're driving the family. And as I'm, as I'm driving and, and processing the day, I'm thanking the Lord for the day. I and mean, guess what I'd already forgotten? I'd already forgotten that we'd lost Sam. And God gave him back to us in that day. It just makes me miss Eli even more. Just really hit me. But you will dance together. The Lord broke into that van. And what to me was an audible voice. And asked me to remember that I'd lost my son. And how I felt. The desperation. And the sadness, the wave of emotion, something that only could be described as anger, righteous anger. I'm, no one would leave that park until I found my boy. And what the Lord said to me is what you felt for that few minutes that he was lost from you is what I feel perpetually for those who are apart from me. And if ever again in your life you need to know the motivation for the gospel in your life to be connected together, if you need that connection to happen, then remember that moment. And that for me has come back over and over and over again as the fuel for me to live my life according to this. 
I don't do it perfectly, but the anchor still holds. This is what I'll spend the rest of my life, what we'll spend the rest of our lives doing. Carol, can you come up here for a second? I'm not going to make you say anything, but come on up here. You can if you'd like. You might know the fact that my wife has rarely spoken on the microphone in the life of this church. And so I'm not going to ask her to do so now unless you take it from me and you want to say something. No stand. I don't want you to. Because um, I want to shift into kind of the, the, the future and wrap up. I already said it, but I'll say it again. Um, many of you have gotten to know my wife a little. Some of you know her a lot. Um, by reputation, you would know her to be quiet. Um, you might, if you don't know her, you might think she's shy. She's not. Um, she has opinions. She has deep, deep beliefs. She has a faith that is abiding, and she has a prayer life that is incredibly admirable, in my in my estimation. Um, if she's praying for you, I put her up there with with Betty and Pat, some intercessors in our church who I think when they're praying for you, you know you're being prayed for. And so, but my wife has held down the fort in our family for the life of this church with almost zero, she doesn't care about this spotlight, and almost all of it's unseen. And I'm going to tell you without, I, you know, I'm not ever going to, I've committed that I'm going to leave this church without riding out on a political wave or a negative wave. There's things I carry in my heart that I could say, and I won't. But I will say this to you. You do not see it unless you're in it, but this is a very difficult job. This is the most amazing job I've ever had in my life. This particular job, you know, pastoring at this church is the best job I've ever had in my life, and I will miss it. You know, I know it's the time and the right thing for us to do. I'll miss it, but I will tell you it's also the hardest job. And at times it's been very lonely. At times it's been very painful. Leaders don't inflict pain, they bear pain. And we've borne a lot of pain. And I will tell you this, that my wife has borne a lot of pain that nobody's seen. Some of it's because she's had to carry the weight when I've not been there. Or there's been times where I've come home and I'm broken over things that I can't share with her. And she just puts a hand on me and prays. And somehow, some of the burden of, that I carry home gets transferred onto her. And there's been sleepless nights and tears shed. And not a lot of friends when you're the, when you're the lead pastors. I'm not, that, I'm not saying that to make anybody feel guilty. I'm just telling you that there's a, certain, there's a certain thing that's involved in it. And my wife has carried the role, the mantle that God's put on her with incredible grace. And, she, and she's been the most significant factor. She has been both Aaron and her if I have served a Moses role in holding up my arms. Do you know that story? Arms are up, the battle's won. When the arms go down, they're not. She's held up both arms. Um, I, I, not alone. Brian and Carrie had been, I mean, tons of people I would thank along the way, but this woman in particular has been, by, she is the reason that I love Jesus. She's the reason that I identified a call to ministry and didn't just abandon it. She's the reason that I remain in ministry. She's the reason that our kids have a hope of productive lives. <laughs> and I love her, and I honor her, and I just want to ask if you would stand and honor her with me.
And so usually I don't say anything, and I regret it. So one thing, if if you ever get the chance, like he was saying, use your words, speak out. And there is not one thing (laughs) that we have ever done in our life that God has not been faithful to lead us through. He has always, always been there. Even when we have walked and done what we shouldn't, or like the failings he's talked about, the imperfect relationships that sometimes we have, when we try to plan and say, we know the better way God shows us, I have something for you. So, I want to read to you the surrounding context of First Thessalonians 2.8 because it has a lot to do with, yeah, please, hang out with me. Um, it has a lot to do with, I think, where we're going is, is Carol and I, but also I think it matters for a church. You can have a seat. You got to get the weight of what's being said here. We love you so much. We're delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well because you've become dear to us. We loved you and we didn't even know you because that's what God compelled us to do by his love. But once we got to working alongside you, we actually grew to love you and to know you. And then if you read this part that's surrounded, you know, when Carol and I came here, we were in our late 30s. I'm now closer to 60 than I am to 50. If I'm rounding, I'm rounding to 60, you know. And when we came here, we didn't feel like we were spiritual parents. We felt like we were making it up, faking it as we made it. And, and honestly, in a lot of ways, we were, you know, a lot of uncertainty, but trusting God to fill in the blanks. And, you know, there was a lot of putting masking tape over the holes and painting, painting it so you couldn't see it in the name of Jesus, spiritual realm pastoring kind of stuff. We didn't feel like parents. We felt like kids. That, but now we're in a little different season and I want to read you the, the, the broader context. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, Thessalonians, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. So do you see in there the maternal language of nurse, the nursery and affection in verse 9, he begins to unpack the, the, the laboring together and how they'd become dear. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believe. Now, I don't think we were entirely blameless, but anyway. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So as we sit, stand, kneel, sit, whatever before you today, I feel more like the broader context of this describes who we are and where we're going. We feel like a mom and dad who have loved you affectionately in, in the language of the nursery to see Christ formed in you. We would say like Paul that it is our burden 
to see Jesus fully formed in you, and, and we'll remain in labor until that happens. We are not going anywhere in the life of this church in terms of our emotion and our, our connection, our heart-level connection to this church. But we also feel like fathers in terms of opening our mouths and exhorting and encouraging you to live lives that are worthy of what God's done for you. So what does that mean for us? We're, by this time next Sunday, we'll have transferred over the, the role of senior pastor to Brian and to Carrie, and they will step into a, um, a, a, what God's doing in their lives to provide leadership to this church. And I will, and Carol will, immediately come into a role of getting down low and serving the vision that God is giving them. That will be our role to do that, to hold up their arms and to serve them. You come to me and say, hey, Jeff, what do you think about this? I'll say, well, I don't know. What does Brian say? You know, that will be, that will be you know, our role going forward. On the third, so on the, that'll happen on the second. On the third, we're going to get in a car and drive up to central Kentucky for three months, and we're going to do something of a sabbatical alongside of our two youngest boys. And if God wills it, I don't know that it's going to happen. They'll play some soccer, and we'll get to watch them. If they don't get to play some soccer, then I'll just hang out with my foot up on a couch for a little while until it's all better, in Jesus' name. We'll come back in November, and we'll be here for a couple of months, November and December. Uh, my, my role forever, I'll be able to put on a resume or whatever I need to put, founding pastor of Maranatha Church of Jacksonville, right? That's never going to change. Um, that'll be... I'll always be able, to, I'll be able to tell the time. I'll say, hey, there was a time in the life of Maranatha Church where I was the senior pastor. Everybody answered to me. But now I'm the founding pastor, which, and I'll always be that. But probably sometime around the first of the year, you know, we're going to vacate that house and allow the wages to, to move into there, and, and then we're going to go. We don't know where exactly we'll go then. We, we're asking the Lord to define that in this season for us. But we will remain connected to the life of this church. We are not, I have already asked and received from approval from our elders to transfer my relationship in this congregation as essentially the presiding elder to an overseer, which means I don't really do anything. But I have a lot of opportunity to remain uh, a person who has a voice in the life of this church, particularly speaking into the life of Brian as he asks me to, and into being connected that way. We'll continue to be part of teaching here and preaching on occasion and offering counsel to those who, you know, uh, who, who want it uh, and to the extent that we can. And so past, the Lord brought us here with a vision that got birthed on May 13th of 2003, present the anchor still holds. I believe it is still the thing that drives us, and I hope it's still the thing that drives this church. If he gives you a better vision, then go for it. But it could only be an improvement. If this church ever says we are going to back down from sharing the entire truth of God's counsel and connecting it to the lives of those who are embedded here, if this church ever backs down from that, I would encourage you to leave. If it doesn't, I would encourage you to stay. I don't think there's a lot of good reasons for leaving a church, personally. <laughs> but that would be one. Future, we're going to continue to go after that verse. We're going to continue to sort it out and figure it out. We have, I don't think, I, I think I hardly know Jesus at 55. 
I think I hardly know what it means to share the gospel. And I believe the greatest days of my life of seeing people come to know the Lord are ahead of me, not behind me. And I hope that's the same for you as well. Let's pray. Jesus, what would it look like in the life of a simple little church if people got fired up about this? starting place for a lot of us is that we've got to actually encounter you. If we're young and we've just been, I'm thinking of young people that are here that maybe you've, you've really just kind of inherited your family's faith. That for you to actually be able to, part, to, to, to partner with God, to participate where the gospel in your life intersect, you've got to be encountered by Jesus in a way that's real and it's your own. He has no grandchildren. You cannot relate to him through your parents. There must come a day where you choose to live for Jesus on your own. If you've deconstructed your faith, whether, and you maybe, probably if you have, you're not here this morning. Maybe you're watching, you're going to watch this later. I want to encourage you. I don't judge you for that. I've done the same. I believe everybody's faith hits the wall. And the depths of our faith in Jesus don't really come until we have hit the wall. And we've had to ask and answer hard questions like, is he real? Is it worth it? Because I could, my life would be a lot easier in a whole lot of ways if I just could get rid of him. If you swallow Jesus, he gives you indigestion. But ultimately, beloved, he's worth it. And I want to encourage you if you're out there and you've deconstructed to keep on pressing for truth, to just cling to the least bit of the gospel that you can. And our prayer is that Jesus would flood into that place and encounter you in a way that would blow you away. And once he does so, you will not ever be the same. And you won't ever live the same. And as Carol said, you will not be able to keep your mouth closed even if you want to. Words will come out of your mouth of joy and hope peace and eternity that will change the lives of those around you. Parents, you'll speak to your children with authority you've never had. Husbands, you'll speak to your wives, wives to your husbands, co-workers and bosses and employees and strangers. You'll speak in ways that people's lives will be changed for eternity. So I pray, Father, that you would move amongst our congregation, even this morning, that this would be distributed out to the very edges of who we are, the periphery of our church. I don't even know who's in our church anymore. I can't tell who's here and who's not here, who comes and who doesn't come, who's watching at home and who's completely drifted away. And so I'm asking in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would take this word out to the widest peripheries of however you define this church and that you would infect us, that this virus of your gospel connected to our lives would be way more viral than any coronavirus, that it would invade our community, that it would pervade us, that as we literally share our breath with those around us, that the people around us would become infected with this Christ-likeness. And people would find themselves repenting of sin they didn't even know they had. 
and turning toward you, Jesus, and leaving behind the old way, the old life, the old man, the flesh, the world, the devil, and they would be aligning themselves in their fullness to you, Jesus, in your fullness, and let that fall on this place. Even today, Lord, I pray for revival, for the spirit of revival to come. Like snot running down our noses, like we're we're overcome by it, and we're so sad for the for the for the bad things, but we become overwhelmed with happiness and joy for what you're flooding into us. And the things that we can't get back, the things that we've lost, the people, the situations that there's no way we can go back and reclaim, the places that devastate us, the people and the things we miss so much, that Lord, that you would fill those places with joy that's unspeakable. With a Genesis 50-20 recovery, that which is intended for evil, you will use for good for the saving of many lives. Lord, that hundreds, maybe thousands in our community would come to know you because maybe just one in this congregation would get lit on fire. Let revival fall. You've got all the right people here for this to happen. And I pray, Lord, that somebody here today would walk away from this day saying, I can never be the same. In Jesus' name. We're going to sing if you'd stand. You do whatever the Lord.